Hey, welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And we're live on Bullhorn again. And Yay. it's fun. It's good to be back in the studio after lots of travel. Oh, God. Lots. We uh, The whole month of May. Yeah, pretty much the whole month of May. We did yeah. get one one live stream show in, show 1800, which was very cool. I know that yeah. was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Although when we're streaming this, 1800 hasn't been published yet because time shifting is complicated. Trust us, it will be a lot of fun. Yeah, I swear. I swear we had a good time, honestly. We there did. was a bottle of whiskey involved. How could it not have been? How a could time? it not be good? Yeah, so <laughs> we we were in Porto, NDC for a week. Yes. Then we both went home. Yep, for a right? few days. Then we went to NDC London. Had a bomb scare. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was fun. Uh, if we haven't talked about that yet, you'll find out. Yeah. And then uh, we went to DevSum yeah. in Stockholm with a little jaunt down to Copenhagen for a mm-hmm. little user group meeting. And uh, back to Stockholm. I did a presentation. I did a not a presentation. I did a workshop there. Yeah, and then you went on to uh, to and Belgium, Techorama. Yeah, Techorama was huge, huge show. And it, and they and they do their conference at a movie theater. And it's also when Top Gun, the new Top Gun, was coming out. And so the oh, Belgian yeah. Air Force had put up like a whole recruiting thing in the movie theater, including yeah. dropping an F sixteen off in the in the parking lot. Because that's something you do. Because that's what they do. So at some point, the organizers of the conference said to me, hey, do you mind if we do a little video with you uh, pr- for promoting the conference uh, using the F-16? And I'm like, okay, you know, whatever. <laughs> Tell me what you want. I'll, I'll follow directions. So I had to, you know, do some walk up to the, the, to the aircraft and go up the ladder and so forth. And they cleared everybody away for me. And, I, and then they actually got me to get in an F-16. Let me tell you something. I am not F-16 sized. Ah. <laughs> so I, I think I did. I, I got in there. I did, More like F-21 size? Or? Yeah, something like that. So I, I got in I'm there. F-30 it's, it's, size. It's a little snug. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that was not the, the ungraceful part of the equation. The ungraceful part was getting me back out of that airplane. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah. Sounds fun. Yeah. Anyway, uh, who knows what that video will ultimately look like. I, it doesn't bother me. I always have a good time uh, with that kind of thing. But uh, yeah, it was a crazy week and it's great to be back in the studio and uh, dealing with uh, with all that good stuff. So here we are. All right. You ready? I am. All right. So I guess it's time for Better Know Framework. Roll the crazy music. <laughs> So I've got an addition to Bogus. You know what Bogus is, right? What's Bogus? Bogus is a bogus data generator. Great for mocks. Oh, right, right. Yeah. So Simon Crop, our friend from Australia, uh, a brilliant guy, mm-hmm. he has created naughty strings dot bogus. Naughty strings. That extends bogus to use naughty strings. And the definite the description is provides a strong type dot net API for the big list of naughty strings. Oh, I which see. he's linked okay. to from uh Mini Maxer. Big list of naughty strings. So you know input is evil mm-hmm. and uh we want to make sure that these naughty strings don't appear in our input. Yes, definitely. <laughs> in our bogus data. That's it. It's just pure and simple. And, um, and, and useful. Like, that's the thing we need. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, sometimes you generate some random data and some weird... Sometimes naughty strings come out. Sometimes naughty strings come out, you know? <laughs> those those random monkeys, you're never really sure what they're going to do. That's right. So, uh, <laughs> check it out. Uh, Simon Crop on GitHub uh, slash naughty strings. Know it, learn it, love it. Richard, love it. who's talking to us? So, grabbed a comment off of show 1791, which is just back in April, when we talked to Phil Hack about pivoting his startup, and we talking about Abbott and all the work that he's done on there. This right. particular comment I thought was very relevant for our conversation today. It's from Brendan Parker, and he said, I've participated in a startup recently. It wasn't using .NET, but I sure wish it was. Hmm. Ultimately, the plug was pulled as some market moves occurred that made it apparent it was going to be a very uphill battle to succeed. So, maybe not super related to this show. But where have all the .NET devs gone? 
I feel like the front-end JavaScript developers are everywhere. My current company is struggling to find solid .NET developer candidates. We've hired some pretty green devs that we hope to train up in the ways of .NET. Uh, but there's still a lot to learn. Where have all the .NET devs gone? I think they're working. Yeah, they are. I think they're really busy. They're in high <laughs> so, demand right now. Yeah, for sure. I think all most development resources are in high demand right now. Mm. Like folks who can build software are busy. Mm. Uh, you know, they. I, I I don't know that I agree with that concept of you know great resignation and so forth. But certainly, there's been a huge shuffling where folks have you know coming out of the pandemic are thinking a little differently about stuff and and are have you know maybe going a little doing a little grass is greener. Like trying other places and wanting to mm -hmm. explore things. And, and some of them are coming running back because it turns out the grass was pretty good where they were. Yeah. Uh, but, um, yeah, they, I think your, your team's doing the right thing, Brendan. You've got to train people. You've got to grow them. And enthusiasm and an interest to learn will carry you further than any existing set of skills. If, if folks are willing to do more and, and get better, you'll be able to do a lot with them mm -hmm. and, uh, and have a lot of success. So I mean, that's just sort of the reality right now. And uh, hopefully it's reality for a long time. It's not a bad way to live that we cultivate our skill sets, that we work as a team, we, uh, that the team grows, uh, that you don't treat developers as widgets. Ah, you right. know how to do front end. You will be plugged in here. And that Potato was all we'll stampers. ever do. Yeah. We'd rather do new things, try other stuff. Uh, and Brendan, thank you so much for your comment. And a copy of Music to Code By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code By, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on the social media as we publish every show to Facebook. And if you comment there and I read it on the show, I'll send you a copy of Music to Code By. And definitely follow us on Twitter. Send us your best naughty tweet. <laughs> Not with, too naughty. With a Maybe low a level naughty. of bogosity. Yes. <laughs> a light, light to medium naughty, please. <laughs> Actually, make it as naughty as you want. We don't care. <laughs> we're who not going to read it on the show don't be crazy yeah who cares man <laughs> so uh that brings us to our guests uh, martin woodward and emo landworth uh, martin is the director of developer relations at github where he helps developers and open source communities to create delightful things prior to that he was part of the team at microsoft building the tooling for devops teams inside and outside the company where he helped change how the company built software he also helped change how they work with open source communities, creating the Microsoft Oregon GitHub and helping to set up the .NET Foundation. And Emo Landworth is working as a program manager at Microsoft on the .NET platform. This includes the base class libraries, the portability mechanisms, and open source. And uh, anything new to add to your bio, Emo? Or is that pretty much it? That's pretty much it. I think it's still the same stuff. <laughs> All right. Well, welcome, guys. It's good to be back. Good to see you. And I'm, I'm sure all that naughty talk was just so you could get me to say naughty with my British accent. I love the way you say naughty. <laughs> and boogs. Don't exactly, write yeah. boogs. <laughs> all right, cool. I say, Richard, there's, a, there's, there's always a quick way out of an F-16, but uh, mm. it's, it's quite expensive <laughs> and you might not have your knees attached when you, when you press that button, but yeah. Well, yeah, and I wasn't actually strapped to that seat, so things were going to get very dramatic. The loops were there, um, but I was also informed this is this was a trainer aircraft. It's a, it was a real F sixteen, but it hadn't flown since the nineteen nineties. So it was a it was like a Block twenty. It was worn out, and uh, so it was basically a static display. Uh, all the knobs and stuff were really worn. Like that plane had a lot of miles on it. We forget that the, the F sixteen is from the nineteen seventies. Like those planes are old. So uh, that's the appropriate airplane to park in a movie theater parking lot and let people sit in. It's, you know, not a, not a weapon system anymore. It's just a static display vehicle. That was before Windows XP. Yeah, they are great <laughs> screens at Tekarama, though. Those movie screens. It's always amazing oh. presenting one of those. They're just absolutely beautiful, aren't they? Yeah, no, no substitute. Yeah, when you say, when you, you put up your bio shot and your your tooth is the size of your head, right? Like that's <laughs> those are big screens. I'm crushing you, I crush your head. I crush your head. Um so Martin, what is maintainer month? Yeah, thanks. So maintainer months, uh, it's a month of celebration we're doing to help support the maintainers that sort of keep open source alive. It's kind of like a jubilee. Yeah, kind of like a jubilee or a jubilee, but yeah, it's uh, you know kind of just like one of those. But yeah. just just to really um, celebrate the awesome people that keep things going, and mm. also try and 
help maintainers themselves get to know each other and get to talk and and uh, have a big group therapy session as well because it's not easy being a maintainer. Of a no, it's not. Some days. What what does a maintainer do besides? I mean, I know they maintain a project, but uh, that open source project might be something they started. It might be something that they just contributed to until somebody said, "Okay, you're the maintainer." How does that work? Yeah, I'll jump on this, and then emo can emo can give us what it feels like as one. Probably that's uh, so. Usually, maintainers aren't paid. First of all, most of the projects you talk to, most of the open source that you use, the person that's maintaining it is um, so the person that keeps that project alive. Usually, just created this project to scratch their own itch to solve mm. a problem that they had. Right, and then. Um, they've out of the goodness of their heart shared it with the world. And, you know, I've done this before you share projects, kind of, you just dump things on GitHub because it's easy and you sort of see if anyone else can use it, that's great. Right. And then all of a sudden, before you know it, people are actually using it, which is mm. quite frightening when you're a maintainer, mm-hmm. when you suddenly realize you're a maintainer. And then, um, very quickly, you, you are there sort of, helping people, you know, use the stuff that you've created, helping people contribute to the thing that you've created and, and you know, helping run that open source project. And then as you get more mature over time, you might need to put some processes and structure in place. But the vast majority of projects you run into and touch as, a, you know, in terms of numbers of projects, hmm. the vast majority of them are just being ran by somebody in their sort of, spare time unless you're lucky enough to get paid to work on open source so emo mm-hmm. what's it like for your life as a maintainer yeah it's funny like the as you said like we're in a very lucky position that we get paid to do this full time right mm-hmm. but um the vast majority of people i don't even think have a second person on it right the vast majority of libraries are maintained by one person basically right. and so just having another person is already amazing right but then being paid to do it as your job that's a different yeah. ball game um I think the challenges that we have on our team are kind of like very different challenges from what, what I hear from, from people that build libraries on our side. So our problems are all about scale, right? Like we have like, you know, hundreds of repositories in like, you know, not dozens of orgs, but I think we have like six or seven orgs on GitHub. So we have like easily hundreds of people in different orgs and just maintaining, you know, the, the permissions alone is a, <laughs> is a, is a fun exercise, mm. but then also just dealing with staying on top of things, right? Just getting, you know, on top of all the issues, right? That's, that is quite a challenge, even if you have a full-time job. Um, because as it turns out, once you have a product, it's also not people just being on GitHub, right? There's Twitter, there's Gitter, there is a, I don't know there's Discord servers, right? So like there's tons of like avenues towards our stuff, and so just staying on top of all of that is is quite challenging. Yeah. But then the actual software is, um, um, you know, more or less the same as before, right? It's just that we we do it now in the open, and so just being transparent and like sharing with the community where we are going, that that is more or less the same stuff as before, right? Versus for most open source maintainers. Uh, as Martin said, they started with something simple, like, you know, doing whatever they wanted, right? And then as they go public, now it becomes a product. And now suddenly all the product development aspects come in, like, oh, I had one vision for this thing. Turns out other people have a different vision for this thing. Yeah, but if you if you started that project, you can reject people's PR requests. Like, Oh, totally. You are effectively dictator for life. You started it. And so, you know, if you've really got a vision for where you wanted to go and someone wants to take it somewhere else, you they can't, all they can do is fork it, right? They can go right. off and do it without you. I think that that's an interesting thing, though. I think that, the, you know, there's different maintainers of a different mindset. I mean, you know, I talked to Brett, uh, who does the Xunit project quite a bit, and, you know, he worked at Microsoft for a very long time. He's not doing this, you know, to 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 become famous. He already has the fame that he, you know, aspires to, and uh, mm-hmm. he's pretty willing to tell people like, yeah, that's not what I have in mind for X unit, so I'm not going to do it, right? Yes. But many other people like they. It's a very polite version of Brad. You just said. <laughs> yes. Okay. I, yeah. He uses a, he uses a different vocabulary, which is more on the naughty list, I think. But it's a little bit naughty. <laughs> yes, a little bit. <laughs> But I think it is a very healthy attitude because it it does allow you to say no, right? And it's I think saying no is the hardest thing for most people mm-hmm. because when when their project becomes successful, they're usually surprised by it by more than anyone, mm. and then they don't want to piss people off, right? They actually want people to to be successful with their project, and so most people tend to say yes too much, and then they this is I mean we did a survey I think two years ago at this point that we asked both maintainers and and consumers of open source what the biggest challenge is, and it's 
the other side. It's the other human on the other end, right? And right, so the, right. the maintainers often feel that the users have unrealistic expectations. And then the, 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 the users very often feel that the maintainers don't care, right? So the, and I think that's just the nature of the situation when you have way more people asking and very little, you know, fewer people, you know, actually doing stuff. Yeah. Um, on our side, it's easier because, uh, but even on our side, I see the same thing. Like we have junior devs who own a particular area and then they basically get asked that like, go on GitHub, you know, respond to issues. And they have the same problem. They feel like, oh, how do I say no to this customer? And I tell people like, just, just state it. Like, just say it. This is not what we want to do. Yeah. And as long as you explain yourself and you're not a jerk about it, I, generally speaking, the response that we see is positive because people, people aren't in, you know, in, in, in my experience, inherently mean. It's just that, you know, this you know, conversation is difficult and online conversation is even more difficult. Um, and that's, that's where a lot of the, the, the problems lie. And, um, you know, I'm involved with open source in .NET in general. So when there's, you know, disputes in the community or there's flame wars going on, I usually see them fly by on Twitter. And then sometimes, you know, I'm, I'm asked to like, you know, help, uh, you know, iron things out. And most of the time it really comes down to somebody said something that, you know, that intended very differently. And then the other side yeah. got, got, got upset and whatever it is. Right. And, and in all of these things combined and you know, create a very, uh, I think high pressure environment for maintainers where they, where they feel like they have a secondary job now <laughs> that they're not getting yeah. paid for. Mm -hmm. Uh, but everybody has the expectation that this is a, you know, a company, right? Like, and so when you go on GitHub, that's customer support. So they expect like 24 seven, you know, hourly response times. And, uh, that is just not realistic. Right. And, um, that that's I think the the biggest challenge for 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 everybody. That includes us. Mm. Well, I, but I think in some ways the fact that you're employed to maintain a project, like you, right. which does means two things in my mind. One, you have far more hours to put in that project than the average yep. regular maintain, you know, mm -hmm. volunteer surprise maintainer. Um, arguably, you're more skilled. You've done it for for much much longer, and yep. uh, but you kind of have to stay in. It's your job. Where. Someone who made something they wanted to make, it's just a passion project. And then it turns out to be other people's passions as well. It's like, I almost want to want them to have a boot camp available. So you've made, you've result, you know, surprise, <laughs> you're a maintainer. You've now ruined what? your life. Congratulations, right? Let me tell you some of the stuff's about to happen to you. I got to mention Dave's comment. Dave Aykroyd in the chat room says, if someone wants to take a project in a different direction, they can fork off. <laughs> hey, fork yes. off. <laughs> which i'm surprised how rarely that happens like in, in my experience yeah. looking around the the github community like for the most part people would rather argue and stay on one line mm. than fork something and and create arguably confusion over a product like in the end you are passionate about the problem enough that you'd rather stay in, in a given track I just ran into this recently where somebody did a wrapper around a JavaScript library for Blazor and hasn't updated it in three years. So somebody else forked it and improved on it. And, you know, that's being maintained now. And that's become the definitive that's version. That's become the definitive that's, version. I, I appreciate that as a, that's not a competitive forking. That's a survival forking. Yeah. Yeah, what's interesting, I, f I forgot the guy's name, but somebody did a talk a few years ago about uh, – um, 10 things that open source that you know 10 things about open source or something like that and he worked at um you know oracle or before that at sun and uh, he observed the easier it is to fork the code the harder it is to fork the community and i think that's uh, what he was talking about is like how easy is it for people to experiment how easy is it for people to like pull down the sources modify them and then mm -hmm. show an, you know demonstrate an idea basically right and the harder that is to do, uh, the easier it is to fork the community and get other people behind your idea. And then you take the people and go somewhere else. Versus if it's easy to just do that, well, then you're just one or two people who show something, but you stay in the community and then you contribute that code back. And then, you know, if people believe in it, it, it will, it will happen. And I've seen this thing at Microsoft. I mean, there was a, a team in Bing. They wanted, I forgot what the language feature was. They wanted something in C sharp. It might have been, uh, certain kinds of literals uh and uh the c sharp team basically said we're not interested we don't think that's a very important thing to do mm -hmm. and then he forked the entire thing he forked the runtime he forked the compiler he forked the libraries and basically built a prototype for it measured it and said like here's the savings that we observe in being by using this feature and then that changed the conversation very drastically they all of a sudden was like oh oh maybe we should look at this hmm. and i think that's an interesting thing because that is 
not just a philosophical problem, it's also an actual hard engineering problem, right? Like it's one thing to fork our repo. It's a very different thing to get a build out of .NET with your changes in them. <laughs> so as uh, Dave mentions, there might be licensing issues uh, by forking something yes. as well. So you have to watch There's that, that too. Uh, that's potentially, the but quite often not. You know, usually that's fine. Um, the the thing about Forkso is they're almost like um it's like an integration credit card. It, it's technical debt. The the further you live on your own fork, so say if this Bing team had decided right, well we want this language feature, we're going to run on our own fork forever now with this special language feature in, then all of the goodness that gets added into the .NET runtime and everything else they've got to merge it into their fork as they go to take advantage of it. And the longer you live off the main project, the harder and harder it is to do those reverse integrations of, of code back in. And so one of the ways I used to talk to managers at Microsoft about like why we need to contribute fixes back upstream to open source projects is um, by contributing that fix back and paying the tax, because there is tax to be paid in terms of getting that contribution merged into the upstream project. Mm -hmm. By mm -hmm. paying that, we're then able to take the features from this project um, and, and stay in line with it easier, especially from the open source people in Microsoft, because most of the time the .NET team are different. The reason the .NET team do open source is so they can be more agile and get feedback from the community, whereas a lot of teams in Microsoft, when they're doing open source, they're, doing, they're contributing to open source libraries to remember, there's 42,000 people now inside Microsoft contributing to open source, which is just mind blowing. But anyway, yeah, mind -blowing. Um, when yeah, when they do that, they're quite often making it like, let's make the Linux kernel work better in Azure. Let's make Chromium work better on Windows. And by by submitting those changes to the upstream project, it benefits everybody that consumes that open source project, not just their particular use cases of it, if you know what I mean. So it makes a ton of sense. But yeah, yeah. forks are good. But it's, it's fascinating, like Emo says, the easier it is to fork, the the network effects mean the least likely it is to take the community. And so people can do forks experiment and then send those results back into the main project to sort of say, hey, I, I've proven it. This does make sense. Do you want to bring it into the main project now? Yeah, I found uh, Spencer Baugh's original post on that MO, and I'll include it in the show notes because it's very insightful. Yeah, that, that you know, if you may, as long as that forking is easy, it doesn't it doesn't harm the community per se. Where as soon as it's hard, it makes sense that the community will actually schism over it. And so you know, it's like the tooling. This is what I think Git, GitHub, you know, right from the beginning said social coding. Like it is this mechanism of having conversations around code. And the biggest thing that a fork says, especially a forking like you were just describing is I am prepared to commit substantial time and effort to this, which is yeah. the real commodity in GitHub at all time. It's code. Open source communities value code over everything else. Talk everything is cheap. Else. Talk is yeah. easy. Everybody can talk. And that's, that's the, you know, that's not what we need more of. What we need more of is fingers on keys. And yeah. if you think about kind of the contribution funnel, sort of at the top of the funnel, you have consumers and 99.9% .9 of people just consume from an open source project. If it solves their problem, they'll use it. If it doesn't, they might not even tell you, but they'll just, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll just wander off. Yeah, yeah, exactly. A small percentage come through and actually give you back time and they might log issues. They might log bugs, Carl. They might bugs, however you're supposed to say it. They might log defects. How about that? No, they might no, like no. help you documentation. They might, yeah, they might come on .NET Rocks and talk about the, that open source project that they love. Um, mm. And then a small percentage of the people who contribute time contribute code. And then finally, a small percentage of the people who contribute code stick around for the long term and become a co-maintainer of that code yeah. base. And that's kind of the funnel down. And it's always a subset. You're not going to be a maintainer unless you've consumed and had value from the project. And mm. so as a maintainer, the most successful maintainers I've ever met are always trying to think about how do we maximize the people at the top of the funnel? So how do we maximize consumption? But then how do we maximize the flow of people through that funnel so how are we welcoming to people um if they want people to help maintain a project sometimes when you do an open source it's like yeah like i've i've got an open source repo which is the camera setup and microphone setup i'm using mm. right now i don't want people to co-maintain that so if people send me prs to this i'm like yeah cool but this is my camera setup i don't yeah. care you know but there are projects where i do want people to maintain so i'm helping push people down that funnel all the time so 
I'm I'm having this side conversation in the chat room that I think we should talk about, which is licenses. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. MIT uh, license uh, allows people to just use however they want. They don't have to reciprocate. And then there are other reciprocal licenses which require any modifications you do to be published back. Um, so, so how does that affect not only the, the popularity, but the health and, and growth of a project? The license. Yeah, shall I take this one, Emo? Is it the licensing conversation? Oh, uh, I mean, so, I think there's different philosophies on this, but I think yeah, that, that exactly. I mean, I talked with Rob about this a lot too. Like, I mean, what he says in chat makes sense, right? Like, I mean, it is this idea that, you know, you, you basically ship open source and then by using a copyleft license or, or some version of that, what he calls reciprocal licenses, right? You kind of like want the other side to give back. You don't want in a world where they just take your stuff, right. build their own, you know, product on top of it and all that stuff remains closed. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of value in that. I think the reason why I think permissive licenses are more popular is because there's fewer strings attached. It is very easy to, for, for a business to say like, you know, there's nothing, there's no harm, right? Like we can use MIT, we can build it, we can mm-hmm. do anything with it. Um, it, it is, it's super easy to convince people to do it, but mm-hmm. I think in the long run, I mean, there is this question, like, what does it do for a community or a project, right? Mm-hmm. I think, and that is where, you know, my team, of course, has a, has a, has a very easy time because it's not just a project. It's a, it's a, it's a platform. It's an ecosystem. And so the, all of these things are already there. And so they will not disappear over, you know, just a license usually, right? But I think there is this question of like, you know, if it weren't for like a huge company like Microsoft funding this project, would a reciprocal license be better for the project? Mm. And, and would it create a more sticky environment where when companies invest, they now feel more invested and they stay more invested, right? And I think that's that's hard to say. I mean, the .NET Foundation, when it started, we basically started with a very liberal license. I mean, probably Martin knows more about this than I do, but I think that's still the, the model that we have. Um, well, I mean, here's the question. If someone isn't re- following a reciprocal license, who's enforcing it? There are groups that enforce it that, you know, there's people, there's people who do GPL license enforcement and go out and sue people, you know, like the, the three software foundation and people like that and people I actually donate money to, but, um, and they're, they're needed to keep, help keep companies honest. The, mm-hmm. the reason why we have the open WRT project is because somebody did a GPL license enforcement on Linksys and got them to send out kind of the router firmware, you know, the, the, the stuff that they built. So there mm. are reasons, you know, there are right. times where people do it, but the MIT license with it being easier, if you're a company like Microsoft and you're trying to like figure out which project to contribute to, if it's an, if it's an MIT license project, it's super easy. Um, but when it's GPL license or a GPL license, then they have to do extra work. So mm. Microsoft have to pay somebody who listens to um, a PO box that people can mail and then get a DVD back with the GPL source code of the thing that they did. You know, like there's stuff yeah. in that license that you have to do to to, to adhere to it. Um, right. Whereas MIT doesn't. An MIT license is compatible with not just all of your commercial licenses, but also other open source licenses yeah. like the GPL things. But there are there are reasons why you might need to. Mm-hmm. MIT, the modern equivalent of shareware. There's a word we haven't heard in 20 years or 30 That's years. That's old school. Yeah, it's, you know, share but don't sue me is, is what it basically says. So, yeah. All right. Well, guys, hang on just a minute for this very important message. Hey, our sponsor today is Raygun, Carl, and we've got J.D. Trask with us. All right. Hey, J.D. Howdy. <laughs> I'm going to dig into that enterprise stuff and talk about scaling websites because I've done a lot of that and I've logged a lot of different ways. Can you talk to me a bit about your experiences when websites get really big and tools like logging uh, have an effect? Do you mean uh, the impact on, say, the cost or the overhead of having it in there? Well, there's that part. There's also the performance aspects, too. Like, logging's not free, especially at scale. Yeah, absolutely. So Raygun itself, we've we've built our products to scale from, you know, I'm starting a side project and I only want to maybe spend a couple of dollars through to uh, our largest customer. We have tracked the performance for 87 million concurrent users of their application. What? Uh, so we can kind of go full end-to-end in there. Wow. <laughs> it's pretty big. Raygun processes a lot of data. <laughs> I thought my 300 users was big. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, at, at that level, you know, we like to think of it as how does Raygun make sure it can scale for those customers? And we've done yeah. some really amazing work on that. Um, we leverage a lot of the benefits that have actually come out of the .NET Core work from Microsoft. That's helped yeah. us a lot. We have .NET on the background. But for the customer, you know, that, that one that had 87 million concurrent users, you can understand they were a multi-platform business. So that, sure. that application was running on smart TVs, you know, PCs right down to almost Casio calculator level, you know, processes. <laughs> uh, so the, the level of uh, performance work we were doing ourselves to make sure that it was minimal overhead to ensure that that customer was having great success with Raygun. Um, you know, I love that sort of work though, personally, sure. you know, trying to find performance optimization. So there's that element. And then of course, making sure you provide a service that provides things like inbound filters and screening to make sure you're not just collecting the noise from logs, you know, you mm. actually want the actionable stuff and that's how you can manage the cost side while also at scale. Well, you mean there's more to the metrics of logging than the size of the log file? <laughs> <laughs> look, look at all that data. Yeah. Oh, we've all been there, right? There's my log file. It's 87 gigabytes in size. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, boy. Uh-huh. I'm going to open it in Notepad and figure things out. It's the joys of software. Now, I really appreciate the instrumentation you have as well to help me understand what's going on inside my app and the logging that's there. And if you'd like to know more about Raygun, go to raygun.com and click on the free trial. Beautiful. Awesome. And we're back. It's .NET Rocks. I'm Carl Franklin. That's my friend Richard Campbell. Hey. And that's Martin Woodward and Emo Landworth. And we're talking about maintainers of open source projects. This is maintainer month at GitHub. And uh, it's a jubilee. It's a festival. We're celebrating the maintainers. And uh, we just got done with a talk about licenses. And you've got uh, some interesting notes here. Uh, one of them is, what are the pain points? I think we've talked about some pain points about maintainers in general, but but are there some that we haven't? Yeah, I mean, you quite often feel alone. It's quite often hard to say no, as Emo said as well. Mm. Um, one of the interesting things is, you know, um, coming from the executive director of the .NET Foundation and then going out and working at GitHub and and sort of working with the, all the open source communities, it's really interesting seeing sort of the different open source communities and what mm. people are strong at, what's what's weaker. And <clears throat> Microsoft's presence within the, you know, the community does definitely affect the .NET community. Um, I would say, like, it's... Um, it is fascinating to sort of see some of the changes there. And occasionally some of the maintainers on the Microsoft side, you know, uh, sorry, on the .NET side, they're busy, you know, maintaining things. And all of a sudden Microsoft come along and announce a thing and they're like, hang on a minute, I was doing a project around that. You yeah. know, what's what's going on here? So occasionally they sort of can get challenges there. But um, overall, it's, it's uh, pretty similar. It's getting support for doing what you're doing, learning how to scale. Yeah. Uh, to go from being this one person project that you did in your spare time to being a larger thing to maybe taking the because pro- remember I came to this gig mm. from working on an open source project and then that mm-hmm. became team prize and then that's how I got to Microsoft so yeah so as a company that um, o- oversees open source and engages with open source how would you rate Microsoft and you know how would you grade them compared to other companies that have tried this? You know, I'm looking at you, Oracle. Uh, you know, other other companies that that you know participate in the open source community. What what kind of grade would you give Microsoft? So we'll say that I'm biased, having you know, sure. I, I still have shares in Microsoft. Uh, I'm they're, you know my parent company kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty good, but not perfect is what I'm going to say. So like, what about a, a B grade? I don't know how Americans okay. grade. I don't know about yeah, yeah. So, so definitely better than like it is. .NET is like more open source than Java. You know, Java's getting getting that way, but it's definitely more open source. But it's um, there are times where the .NET, you know, Microsoft does things for commercial interest that mm-hmm. the that parts of the .NET community aren't happy with you know and right. so that there's times where, where that does happen and there's also an interesting thing that um because donna developers are used to taking the thing that's kind of certified by microsoft there is a general like reluctance within the community to get behind projects which aren't being 
is this the one Microsoft wants us to use or yeah, not? Do you know what right, I mean? Like, right. they, t- they tend to be this kind of. It's like, funny that that is still there. I, know, I mean, right? that is what yeah. the that's what the alt.net folks were railing against mm. a decade ago or more. Mm-hmm. You know, the, this don't use it because it comes from only, only use stuff that only comes from Microsoft. Like, a, assess yourself, look at what's in the repository, look at its health, mm. look at the maintainers. Like, that, that was. You know, one would argue their language wasn't particularly effective, but mm. their message was accurate. It, and the, the you know the organization may be gone, but the concept is still very real. Right? I, I, you should be able to reach into the product community. I think the mature .NET developer has gone through the phase of, um, you know, getting over asking oneself every time a new developer technology comes out, oh, should we scrap this and use this now? I mean that that's the that has always been the historical reaction to new technology for developers coming out of uh, Microsoft for the .NET community. And I think we've gotten over that, you know, that, that that's not a question you should be asking. The question should be, oh, where does this fit in our landscape? And is there something it could do better than what we're using now? Not, you know, is this dead because something else came out that looks and smells like it? I will say as well that Microsoft does contribute a lot. Like I did mention, it's like over 40,000 people at Microsoft now are contributing mm-hmm. back to open source. Um, and it does a lot to kind of, you know, it, it bought GitHub, it supports GitHub. It, it, it does, um, it supports a lot of the contributes it, it, it sort of consumes from as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also gives back you know, financial money to people who were, who were sort of building open source project that it depends on. So on mm-hmm. there, I think Microsoft does actually does great. You know, it's, it's one of the top contributors to it. Well, it's one of the top contributors to open source out of all of the companies out there. Some people sure. say it's the top, but actually I think it's one of the top, you know, um, which is phenomenal. Yeah. The is always a tricky one. And it's not, and not important either. No, it's good to be a leader in that respect. And I, you know, in the chat, Rob was mentioning this whole about maybe more projects should have the reciprocal license. But I wonder if the reciprocal license is even really necessary. If the mo- the current evolving culture of open source tends to naturally be reciprocal because the consequences of not being reciprocal are both a social pressure and a product pressure. Mm. That uh, fragmenting yeah. a market's bad for you too, that in a lot of ways – organization most companies want one choice and so if we keep contributing to the same project we're more likely to get more folks involved with it because it isn't fragmented yeah i think that's it's a bit like emo's case about you know the easier it is to fork a community the less it is likely for it to diverge right there's a little bit of a case with licensing as well the easier it is then you get network effects which mean more Mm -hmm. people can consume so more people contribute i will say though there are definite use cases where you know, more reciprocal licenses make sense. It might be the way that you fund development on this project is by having a reciprocal license if you use open source, but you can pay for one that doesn't have a license. It might be that um, there's people who are in, like Julia Sweetland, who does the OptiKey project, which is mm-hmm. a project which is, does assistive technologies to help people, you know, use computers who have um, um, mobility impairments and things. There is that's in like, kind of like the medical devices industry, and there's right. a whole world of like people in that in that space that don't play nice with open source, and so he he chose to license his project under a, a more reciprocal license to kind of force the players to contribute back. So it it, it depends, you know, like the classic uh, the classic tech answer to anything. Yeah, I mean, to me that also speaks to a culture. Right. They, they, that also spoke to the culture he was dealing yeah, with. And unless they were explicitly said, you only work with this if you're going to reciprocate. Um, because I look at a bunch of cultures that don't do that. I look at what happened with Kubernetes as one of those mm-hmm. social contract reciprocal deals that the, you know, there was a time when we had, there was a whole bunch of different orchestration engines. And we were all feeling around for the right way. And the market consolidated on Kubernetes because a lot of big players all came together to contribute to it. That that reciprocal behavior ultimately made a market we preferred because we really wanted an orchestration engine that had all the features that mattered. And it, when enough folks consolidated around Kubernetes, even if it wasn't the greatest of all the choices, it was the ecosystem that made it sufficient. 
right? And enough, when enough people yeah. participating, enough other products also got built. If Microsoft had chosen to fork Kubernetes rather than to simply contribute to the Google version, right? That would have been a very different situation. And it's not how the, how it went, right? That that cultural, let's stick together on this because we want a consolidated market around it, that everyone benefits from that. I think that was the powerful force. And I wonder if that's not pretty normal, at least in these specific markets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is normal. And, you know, it's Apache licensed the Kubernetes project and which is a, you know, a very Equally similar very to MIT, permissive. apart from it has some, yeah, yeah it, it's not, it's classed as non-reciprocal and, you know, it doesn't, but in, uh, what people do because of the network effects of that project building up. So, well, that then again, it was easy for them to do that because they had Google funding the development of it, you know, and they had other big players coming in funding yeah. the development of it. So there's, there's reasons. Well, and, and herein lies, I think, an interesting problem in open source in general, at this market now evolving, which is yeah. what happens when a 40-hour week employee of a major company is assigned by his manager to contribute to a project that has a volunteer maintainer? This was a side project, but suddenly it's become important. And, and you can effectively overwhelm that maintainer with code because you get to work on it full time. Mm. Like it gets a very challenging social problem in the sense that, you know, it's like it's a a, it's kind of wealth disparity. You're a volunteer working part time as a maintainer versus this person employed to make him, quote unquote, improvements to this project, ultimately drive in a particular direction. Like, I think that could get very toxic. Yeah, that is one thing that we have talked about on our team a lot. So like one thing that came up in chat, I think Rob mentioned that is that Microsoft could do more to promote projects. And I think part of the way we do it is by contributing to projects, basically lending our voice to it and also partially just using it. I mean, that's how we more or less promoted X unit over say MS test, right? We, We decided to use it and then we decided to contribute to it. But there is, there is this problem of like, you know, as you said, if we have one or two people contributing, you know, once or twice a year, it's fine. If we have literally a person working full time on that project, then that usually will result in us being effectively the maintainers at that point mm-hmm, just by, mm-hmm. by sheer time, right? And that's, that is pretty much what a hostile takeover would look like in open source, right? <laughs> and so, hmm. sure. Well, and like, and we've already talked about like, this is a, this is a society, a community that speaks in code. And so right. if you can overwhelm with code, you win. Right. For yeah. better or worse. Hey, Martin, uh, what makes .NET open source communities different from other open source communities? Is, is there any, um, any, anything in particular that makes us special? Obviously, everybody's lovely. Um, <laughs> isn't it? There's an interesting, no, I'll be honest, actually. When you meet maintainers in person, they are the nicest people you'll meet. And that's one of the best things about my job is I get to talk to a lot of these people. Mm. And like a bunch of them are in our chat now as well. They're Mm -hmm. just the nicest, most caring people. They can be opinionated, Mm -hmm. sure. But they're like most nicest, most caring people you meet. Um, The main differences I see are the kind of ones we've already talked about is this presence of a large player like Microsoft in that community and how that affects the dynamics. Um, other than that, say the Python community probably does a better job of encouraging diversity within that community and promoting the diversity of the, the maintainers. Um, we've got a long way to go on the .NET side. It's improving, but we've got a long way to go. Um, and then um, the .NET community tends to be a lot more kind of MIT-based, uh, you know, and um, sort of than an Apache based rather than kind of GPL based and things like that in terms of like mm-hmm. with the hippies. But yeah. It's, 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 it's free it's, love. Man. And also people, it's free love. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then people tend to contribute. I, I, I disagree. I think you, the MIT license is a way of saying, I don't want to think about licenses. Yeah. Right. It's like, take the license conversation. Out. I don't want to have to call legal. When I see an MIT license, I don't have to call legal. Mm. Right. Like, in, one would argue, and I'm just being very cynical here, is like, that's a way of saying, I don't want to play. I'm staying out of that fray entirely. Yeah. I mean, I really appreciate that you use the term reciprocal license for GPL rather than copy left or any of the more aggressive terminology around that. Mm-hmm. Reciprocal is the polite way to say, hey, we expect you to have rules around how you play. And the, and I'm hinting at through this whole conversation, it's like, and we've been doing that anyway for the most part without these licenses. Yeah. 
because it's because that's the social contract. But you know, the side effect of the tech giants playing in the open source community is to dilute that with MIT type licensing that we've a huge number of non-participatory licenses are suddenly out there because there's a tremendous amount of code out there. Yeah. And yet they're still following the social contract because they're mostly afraid of their lawyers. Can you blame them? Well, and as Rob mentioned, says in the chat room, MIT licenses, uh, MIT license is corporate friendly. And so yeah, that, cause you don't have to talk to legal. That's you don't have, as you said, you don't have to talk to legal. Yeah. But then again, if it's corporate friendly, it allows people to be more likely to contribute to it, which then means that it helps them be successful. So it's, well, it's, it's the it, interesting network effects, which is what we're That's the other side to. of this. When mm -hmm. New people are coming to the open source community that aren't necessarily savvy to these things. And if they're working for bigger companies where those, uh, those are concerned, mm. they've got their eye out for MIT for the, exactly the same reason. So I don't have to talk to legal. Mm-hmm. How is the open source.net community doing? Like, uh, how, is it healthy, strong? Are we, are we experiencing challenges lately? What's going on? Emo, what do you think? From my point of view, like F shops doing amazing, C shops doing amazing, the runtimes and libraries doing good. Like, you know, what's the, what's, what's going on? I think the, the one key difference I would say that.net has that the other communities don't have is that there's still, for better or worse in many respects, is that, that Microsoft delivers an entire vertical, right? We don't just deliver, let's say, the compiler or the framework, we deliver an entire product, mm. right? And that is, I think, distinctively different because if you look at Java, for example, there's not one player that does it all, right? There's usually multiple players that deliver parts of it. And, and that results in this thing that there is an understanding that people use other people's stuff, right? Microsoft still has this, you know, things that we ship that we own, we own the entirety all the way to mm -hmm. the bottom, right? And that is changing, I think. You see this in Azure where we basically promote, you know, Linux over Windows Server these days, mm -hmm. right? So there is a bit of a, you know, we just use the best tag available and whether that's Kubernetes, Docker, or whatever, right? We, we, we build stuff around that. I think we still have ways to go to do this in the .NET uh, product. And that extends to our customers. I've heard many customers saying, I don't want some random person's project. I want the Microsoft supported thing there. And, and it's a, it's a, it's an actual challenge because then what it means for open source project is a lot of these people are afraid to have their product be successful because then Microsoft will take it and run with it by basically duplicating it or building something similar. And I think that is a problem that we, that is hard to solve. Like, I mean, most of the time we're not hostile in the sense that we always oh, just want to seize control. It's just by the time we realize we have a need, you know, the project that exists there are not a hundred percent the right thing. And then it's just, okay, what, what is the fastest way to get from the 60% where it's at to a hundred percent. And then it comes back to, well, we can assign 10 people to it and get it done, but that doesn't work in an open source collaborative, you know, social setting because that takes too long. Right. And I think there, that is where corporate interest and, and short-term thinking is I think 100% opposed to what would be healthy for an open source ecosystem. And the now you you guys are in a trap too. You know, you're trying yeah, to be good course. open source citizens, but November's coming up and you need to deliver. <laughs> and there's a set of things that need, if we're going to use this project and support the community, we got to get these features in. Mm. And you have a, a person with a full-time job has got other things to work on and may well have a different vision for what it's supposed to be. Yes. Much less is just plain being intimidated by a bunch of blue badges showing up. Like that's, that's gotta be pretty scary. I don't know how you get over that. What do you do? Do you fly the person in and sit down and chat with them? Just like, here's where we are trying to try and give them a better sign of like, we're not trying to be evil here. We're trying to support you, <laughs> but I also, but November's coming. Yeah, I think that the, the the way I have been thinking about this and other people have different views on this, I think, but to me, one of the fixes to this problem is to effectively flatten the curve, right? Instead of doing these spiky investments thing where we sit in a boardroom and decide, you know what .NET needs is investment in space X, and then we are like assigning 50 people, we try to make it more long-term, right? So one of the things we've recently done, for example, is, you know, building support for experimental features that can exist in the product for a couple of years or a couple of releases. And then we may yank them out or we may, uh, you know, we may not do them at all. Um, and the, the idea there is that we basically get more people involved sooner, right? That includes the community that includes other mm -hmm. people's projects. Um, and I think that helps to 
ensure that, you know, when there is already a project that is kind of close-ish, but we work with them and we, we say, here's what I think it needs to happen. And then these things happen. And then by the time this becomes a product offering, it's a lot easier, right? So one of the yeah. examples where this happens right now is GDPR, right? Where, not GDPR. Um, GRPC? Is that what you mean? Yes, thank you. Yeah. Too many, too many words here. Yeah. Um, and basically, that was not a project we started, right? That was there was uh, people at Google who started it, and then of course the .NET client wasn't where we wanted it to be, and then mm. James Student King started working on this, right? But it wasn't this thing where we oh we need to be done in three months, right? So there was a bit more of an ongoing thing. Or open telemetry, it's the same thing. It's not a thing that we have been doing. It's not just Google. There's plenty of other people involved too, but. It is fundamentally, we, we have these big company names, but these projects are fundamentally like 10, 15 people, right? So it is right. literally people arguing with each other about what's the right way of doing it. And so I think that's an interesting thing because then you actually have the time to do the social thing, right? And I think that is what needs to happen to to get the community along for the ride, right? And I think that's generally resulting in better tech. It generally results in more happiness. Um, and I think that also re- removes a lot of these you know, short-term drastic action taking that that, that that Microsoft has been certainly guilty of. That doesn't solve it entirely. I mean, there's still this, oh, the, our competition does something we have to react now and then mm-hmm. business interests will trump certain things. But we, 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 we certainly try, I think, more of this. And then there's just the, the, the contribution stuff, right? I mean, we have done this with .NET Standard, for example, or .NET Core, where we basically contributed two projects to say, hey, we, here's a PR that makes your, your, your library built against .NET Standard or built against .NET Core, right? Rather than asking people to do it, you know, we can help do it for them, right? Yeah. And, and so that's... And I, and I got to think those are very welcome to be compliant with a standard, that kind of thing, yes. where it's not really a feature ad so much as it is up-leveling some things, straightening some stuff out. Like, it's, it's really a kind of refactoring work, huge, hugely valuable. Uh, and then the other thing is just honestly availability, right? I mean, the fact that we are building .NET in the open and we are on social media, we are basically, most people know our names or they, they know us in the repos, they know how to reach us. That already uh, addressed a lot of those problems because it's yeah. no longer the, you know, Microsoft is this Death Star kind of abstract entity. It's actually people that you can talk to. Yeah. Well, and other, and you can, you know, works the other way too. You can contribute to Microsoft projects. I've seen it done. Yeah. Um, I'm, I know you guys read all of the issues and so forth, and, and it's part of your process for, for defining things. How often does someone send up code that ultimately can affect the direction of a project? Cause that seems less likely to me. It seems like a good way of getting hired. That's happened. Yeah. That has happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, interestingly, what was bizarre, um, it's bizarre to me how much contribution comes from outside the community to where. So places like the sort of, you know, the thing, the base class library and things like that would get most contribution, but it's actually like the runtime and these really yeah. super nerdy hard bits where you see tons of contribution. Like over 60% of contributions to .NET come from outside of Microsoft now, which is bonkers. Like I just That's wouldn't crazy. have expected that. Um, yeah. So it is phenomenal. Um you to sort of see, and it's also like the great unexpected. I remember, like you know, David Fowler is just absolute, you know, genius of the next level sort of oh, thing. Yeah. And I remember him talking to me once, going, "Look at this! It's, somebody's implemented a, I don't know, Debrugian, whatever it was, some <laughs> kind of sorting algorithm for performance." That and he's like, "I've never even heard of this algorithm." You know, and he was sort of talking to me, and he, he just, yeah. it was the best thing ever. So that's great. Yeah, it, 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 you'd be surprised at how much contribution comes from outside. Hey, with the uh, few minutes we have left i want you guys to maybe put your future hats on and give us a think about uh you know, what the community is going to look like in i don't know five ten years emo do you have hopes of what the community is going to look like so the two things that, that is important to me um and that is something where i think we are doing relatively well even though we could do better is this no app right like i think that's the the <laughs> thing that i think all up is a problem in open source is that there's a lot of this you know, alpha male, you know, philosophy stood around, right? The, yeah. the, the hero code or whatever you want to call this, right? And I think that is a, a, a toxicity that I think uh, that can't be overstated, right? And I think that that is something that we, I think, all actively work towards. And I think it has gotten substantially better. Right? No I fascists. Think, yeah, I, I really hope <laughs> that we that we reach a point where, you know, the, the default of open source communities is a welcoming place for everybody where... Yeah. Ideas are discussed based on merit and not like who these people are. 
I think there are still technologically things that I think would hope for. So one thing that we have recently started using is uh, um, code spaces in GitHub to make it easier for mm-hmm. people to just get started, right? Have a built environment already set up for them so they don't have to like spend like five days getting their machine in the state where they can actually build the repo. Um, so that would be amazing if we could make the barrier of entry, both in terms of the community and in terms of the tech, so easy that anybody who is capable and interested can do it, right? That, that, and I think that's, that is the trajectory we are on that seems very, very realistic to me. Yeah. I, I, the yeah. culture, I mean, on one hand, you could think that in the old school open source community, it was, I am making a tool to help me. I put it up here in case anybody else wants to use it. The mindset of someone coming in and going, hey, I really appreciate your tool, but I can make it better. Like it is very much a a ego driven kind of thing, right? Does I have a better idea than what you've done so far? Mm-hmm. Uh, working on humanitarian toolbox projects, we've seen exactly the opposite where most of our issues are written by the disaster response specialists mm-hmm. where they're saying, hey, like, here's what we need from this software. Yeah. And nobody contributes code without first having a conversation on that line. And it sucked up the, the, I'm not asking you for a better idea. I have professionals working on that problem. Mm. I'm asking, can you help us implement it? Mm-hmm. Right. And then, you know, there is some things you can do in code that disaster response specialists don't necessarily think about because they're not programmers. But ultimately, though, you know, those, those are the issues that, that, that surfaced. It, it made me believe in a kinder, gentler open source working in that space. And it, I would like if that is the tendency that we talk first, code second, even though we also said that code was ultimately the real currency of this community. Making like that, it easier that, to contribute to code is definitely something that I want to, you know, I'm working on and working on with a lot of projects. Um, helping it easier to be for maintainers to be more sustainable as well. So, you know, maintainer burnout is a thing I worry a lot about. And so sure. how do we make it so it's more sustainable for everybody? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, but, and the way we make it more sustainable in many times is making it easier for people to come along and help contribute. So, yeah. And the one thing I hope for is that it's more acceptable for companies to have employees that are not working on anything that the company necessarily has as closed source, but like open source projects that are important for the company strategy, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it would be great if, let's say, Microsoft hires a bunch of people, don't doesn't tell them what they want to work on, but they just own a bunch of popular .NET libraries, mm-hmm. right? That would be amazing because yeah. then we can solve the, you know, the... You know, people need to make a living. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but we also, I think the one thing that open source benefits us that it's not just driven by corporate scorecards, right? It is yeah. driven by people's passion. It is a piece of labor, uh, like a, like a labor of love kind of thing. And that is something that is, you don't get from, from corporate scorecards. You just don't. Right. And I think yeah. that's like squaring these two things, like but also making it, you know, for them sustainable so they can actually, you know, pay their bills and not work like 80 hour weeks. Um, that would be great. And I think that would, definitely require changes in the you know in, on the corporate side well we're looking forward to a future of a completely robust.net open source community thanks martin thanks emo it's been a pleasure talking to you it was fun and for those who did not see us on bullhorn you don't know what you're missing go to bullhorn.com dotnet rocks and follow us and when we go live You'll be notified and you can jump in the chat room and listen and contribute. You can be part of the show. Isn't that fun? All right, guys. Well, uh, thanks again. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter van.